there! Welcome to Blockhead, a Peanuts tribute podcast exploring and celebrating Charles Schultz's comic strip masterpiece. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for what I hope will be a series of in-depth discussions around Peanuts, the comic strip, from a cartoonist's point of view. You might be asking yourself, what does that mean exactly from a cartoonist's point of view? Does that mean we're going to have a podcast that talks endlessly about pen nibs? About Strathmore three-ply? Or India ink? Lettering guides? Rulers? T-squares? Drawing boards? Whiteout? Hmm. Sounds exciting. Well, it's exciting to me. It's exciting to cartoonists. That's the stuff we get into. That's the stuff we really want to know about. But then, on the other hand, I'm not so sure that anybody else is interested. Well, anybody who's interested in Peanuts wants to know how it was done. How did Charles Schultz do what he did? Did he conjure it up out of thin air? Well, we know he didn't. We know he sat down at a drawing board. We know that he had paper in hand. We had, he had pencils and he had pens and ink. And he put all of that stuff together to make this magical work of art we call Peanuts. How did he do it? Cartoonists want to know. <laughs> Cartoonists want to know. Give us the info. Give us that material. Then we'll go off and we'll make one ourselves. And then we'll cash in. Yeah, we'll cash in and we'll roll in the big bucks. That's what we're going to do. That's what cartoonists want to know. That's the info they want. We'll hash it out together here on the podcast. Figure it out. We'll get all those tools. We'll get all those, all those accoutrements. And together we'll make magic. That's not how it works. You can have all the right stuff and still you're not going to be Charles Schultz but you're going to be you hey, that's okay you don't have to be Charles Schultz you can be yourself I'm talking to myself now I'm telling myself you don't have to be Charles Schultz you can be somebody else just be yourself use your tools but on the other hand it's neat to know what the master utilized in the making of a great work of art and so, cartoonists want to know what's going on under the hood. Just like any great mechanic wants to know what's going on under the hood of a great car. How does it work? How does it function? What makes it special? What makes it tick? I don't want to uh, overdo that analogy, but uh, I think I'm gonna. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know anything about engines. I don't know anything about cars. But I do know something about... Get ready for this. The engine of comics. <laughs> I think I can look under the hood and I can understand the uh, the engine, you know, the various parts that make the uh, the car of peanuts run. Uh, 
yeah um, you know what do we find in there what do we find we we don't find you know um, batteries and cables and belts and and whatever else is in an engine carburetors and things like that we find analogous things though we find characters right we find Charlie Brown and Snoopy Lucy and Linus uh, Schroeder all the all the rest and uh, we also find you know along with the stuff that we we see in the final product we also find the pen nibs and we find the paper and we find the circle templates and the t-squares and the, the drawing boards and the ink and all of the little um, tools that are utilized to make this this uh, yes this fine vehicle run smoothly uh, we find things like uh, you know uh, incidental things like what Charles Schultz ate for breakfast uh, what did he eat for breakfast? I'm sure that we could Google that and find that out. You can find anything out, right, on Google. Um, but from what I understand, anyway, and things that I've read, is that uh, uh, Charles Schultz would go to his ice rink every morning on the way to the studio, and he would, uh, uh, you know, warm up there, uh, read the paper and drink his coffee or whatever it was that he had for breakfast um, before he went on to the studio. So that's part of it, too. Uh, and although we can't experience that unless we have an ice rink, I don't even, you know, I don't think that's how I would start my day. Uh, but hey, maybe the magic's there. Maybe you gotta skate in the morning. But I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna get an ice rink. I don't think. Uh, I mean, maybe accidentally, you know. But I don't want to think about that. That would mean water flooding, and I don't want to go there. But anyway, uh, so those are all parts of the whole and those are the things that keep things running and keeps that well-oiled machine I can't stop with this analogy now uh, but fans want to know as well as cartoonists right cartoonists want all that stuff we want all that information we want to know what's going on we want to know how it was made this is our favorite thing how was it made what did he do uh, not to not to recreate it but to understand more and to learn Right? And I think fans want to know that too. It's it's even though you may not take look, I don't go into a music studio and make records like you know some of my favorite musicians. But at the same time, I love finding out uh, how they recorded their great music and and what happened in the studio and what choices did they make and what did they leave out and uh, what was the interaction among you know the various players. Uh, in the studio at the time. Those are things that are of interest to me and um, as somebody who is a fan. And so I think this is going to be of interest to fans as well as cartoonists. I certainly hope so. And uh, we'll go from there. personal history with Peanuts begins in the 1960s uh, and when I was learning to read in the mid-60s and uh, uh, my encounters with Peanuts at first, well, the, the first time I ever encountered Peanuts or heard the name Charlie Brown was when I was learning how to play wiffle ball with a group of kids in the neighborhood. I was about four years old and we had moved in the neighborhood maybe a few months before. And uh, so I was the new kid on the block, and they were going to teach me how to, to play. And, of course, I'm just a toddler, right? So I don't know anything. And uh, 
and everybody else was kind of having fun at my expense and I recall that you know because it was a very formative experience and I think it, it you know anyway its impact on my psyche was profound anyway uh, so yeah, I'm traumatized by a wiffle ball game um, so anyway uh, I remember you know swinging at the ball the, the wiffle balls being pitched towards me by one of my my soon-to-be friends older brother and who teased me mercilessly throughout my my life in that uh, neighborhood um, so I missed every time you know they're teaching me how to hold the bat I didn't know how to hold a bat I didn't know what a bat was it was taller than I was and uh, and trying to swing the bat you know I kept falling over uh, and missing and so you know three four five times I just kept missing and uh, everybody's laughing and somebody said he's Charlie Brown and before you know it you know all the kids were saying he's Charlie Brown he's Charlie Brown and I didn't know who Charlie Brown was well what's this Charlie Brown who's Charlie Brown Except for, you know, hearing that I was Charlie Brown I didn't know who Charlie Brown was Well, then they told me, you know, Charlie Brown is this kid Who's uh, always trying and failing At everything he does And, uh, oh gosh, that had a, that, that hit me hard You know, four years old I, I think I, I was devastated um, And so that was my first encounter With Charlie Brown uh, I, I recall it vividly And, um, uh, you know, because the scars <laughs> The scars are deep They're very, very deep So then, uh, it wasn't long after that, though, that, you know, I began to encounter Charlie Brown more frequently in, uh, in printed material, uh, in particular, paperbacks, paperbacks uh, that collected strips uh, printed by Fawcett. Uh, there's a whole series, as collectors know, of paperbacks printed by Fawcett Publications, a big publisher at the time. And uh, they collected a group, groups of strips and printed them one per page vertically on these paperback pages. And uh, for a kid, they were really easy to read and really accessible. And they were all over the neighborhood. You know, we had some in the house that I'm, I'm, I guess my mother must have purchased because she was trying to encourage me to read. And uh, kids in the neighborhood had them, and we would trade them and, and share them and, and pass them around. And, uh, you know, those kind of paperbacks were really popular then I loved those. They, uh, there were collections of Mad Magazine and Don Martin cartoons, and you know that's how I was introduced to a lot of, a lot of comics, a lot of cartoons through paperback collections like that. In particular, I liked the Peanuts collections because there was one cartoon per page, and a lot of times they left the panel borders off, which allowed your mind to kind of um, freely operate in and around the characters, and it created this wonderful ambiance uh, that that you know your imagination filled up. And uh, and so that was that was you know really uh, important to me um, as a reader. It, it allowed my imagination to think, oh, this is like my neighborhood, and uh, relate to it that much more easily. Uh, there's something about that, you know, uh, allowing those panel borders to fall away. They're necessary. They're necessary in newspaper uh, comic strips, but um, it's nice in the faucet paperback that they, they kind of sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, they took the liberty of, of eliminating them. Uh, it gave more space to the drawings and, uh, and to the evocative nature of Schultz's wonderful pen and ink work. So 
So growing up in the 60s was very fortunate for uh, anyone who was a budding fan of Peanuts. It coincided with uh, uh, Schultz's peak in creative ability and his skill as a cartoonist and and his sense of humor and his, his character's development. And also with the peak of Peanuts' popularity, uh, in the culture, on television and elsewhere, uh, Peanuts seemed to be every place. And, and those collections that were put out in the late 60s, in particular uh, Peanuts Treasury and Peanuts Classics and Sandlot Peanuts, those were books. I was very fortunate that my parents uh, purchased those for me, you know, for birthday presents or something like that. It's very fortunate to have those books because those collections, I read them over and over and over again, growing up, uh, as and in, through my teen years, into my twenties, into my thirties, uh, you know, I refer to those collections over and over again, and um, they had a profound effect on me, profound enough that I grew up wanting to become a cartoonist. You blockhead! Before I sign off from this introductory episode of Blockhead, the podcast, uh, I think I ought to say a word or two about the introduction, uh, which is a mashup I put together of several different sources. Uh, The primary source for it comes from a 1962 recording called Peanuts, featuring Kay Ballard as Lucy and Arthur Siegel as Charlie Brown. Uh, The incidental sounds in the background, or music such as it is, was composed by a gentleman by the name of Fred Carlin. And I put that together with a little bass line to create that intro. I was inspired to do that because it's such a strange and evocative record, and I find it so... uh, what is it? It's aggressive. It's it's uh, it's it's scary in a way. It's a scary version of Peanuts. And at least as a kid, I found it scary. Now I find it very strange. It's a very strange record. If you've never heard it, search it out. It's a 1962 record on Columbia. It's on vinyl. It's not on CD. And it and it's really very odd in so many ways. Um, first and foremost, the record's sound is very it's empty it's spare it's like got this this space in it between the characters speaking and the environment they're they're living in and they're working in and the music itself is just the sounds of tricycles and uh, uh, bicycle horns and uh, little bells that you find on tricycles and tin cans and uh, rattles and things of that nature. The accoutrements of childhood make up what is supposed to be the music uh, in this particular environment. And that in and of itself is very strange because we all expect uh, you know, some kind of symphonic music uh, to carry us from one vignette to another vignette and fill in the emotional environment around the sounds and the recordings of the actors' voices. But that doesn't happen here. What instead you get are these very spare sounds, which for me as a kid, and even today, uh, evokes the kind of emptiness that you can sometimes find in suburban 
environments and suburban life when uh, it seems like the streets are empty uh, and if you're a kid in the summertime and there's you've got nothing to do your friends maybe aren't around you don't know how to spend the afternoon and and the environment can seem very very spare and very empty and, and in some ways um, a little alienating and uh, uh, that's the environment in this record that Fred Carlin puts together an alienating environment and I suppose that's very appropriate when you think of it for uh, the world of peanuts because peanuts deals with alienation I don't know that Carlin was thinking that deeply about it but you know I think the record conveys that on top of that you get Kay Ballard and Kay Ballard uh, who was a comedian, a successful comedian, played a lot of different parts, was a, a, a team player on the Perry Como show. She was one of those uh, supporting characters on the Perry Como variety show, I guess. So she was a sketch artist, and I think she did nightclub routines. And in fact, I think um, Arthur Siegel, who plays Charlie Brown on this recording, and she, as Lucy, did these uh, readings of the comic strip first as part of a nightclub act. And uh, that's how popular Peanuts was in the late 50s and early 60s, that you could, you know, take reading the comic strips and turning it into, turn it into an act on the, on the road, on the nightclub circuit, and then make a recording of it in 1962, which I'm surprised that Schultz really uh, approved of, but he must have found the same kinds of things in it that uh, I find in it and others have found in it, which is, uh, first of all, the spareness and alienating quality of it, but then also... Kay Ballard as Lucy. Boy, oh boy, I've, I've never heard a Lucy like Kay Ballard's Lucy. I mean, she goes for the juggler. Uh, if, if Lucy is meant to be, uh, you know, an aggressive, confident, maniacal character, uh, as she certainly is in the comic strip, Kay Ballard does it to the hilt. I mean, she is scary. I mean, she is a scary Lucy. And uh, um, I think that's one of the things that can be very off-putting for people who've heard the record. Uh, those who don't like it uh, you know, tend to, to have a problem with Kay Ballard's Lucy. There are others who find it very authentic. I happen to be one of those. Um, I think that her Lucy is about as authentic a Lucy as you're ever going to get. And it really taps into some of that, that um, aggression and uh, dominance that Lucy pervades through the 50s and 60s. She's a really forceful character, and uh, one of the reasons I think the strip in the 60s is so great is because Lucy is just so strong. So look for the record. Uh, it's on vinyl. You can't get it on CD. I don't think it's ever been reissued. I think uh, you can hear it on YouTube, and uh, so look for Kay Ballard Peanuts, and you, you, if you've never heard it, you owe yourself the opportunity to check it out. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Hope you'll come back. Take care, and be sure to hug a warm puppy.